This episode of Home Truths was sponsored by Heels, design that lasts a lifetime. I was pretty determined. I've always been pretty, I've got a lot of energy and I've been pretty determined to prove that I'm right. <laughs> so I guess I, uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I was what, I was 23, 24. I think anyone's got a lot of energy then and you, you do pretty much anything. If someone gives you an opportunity, uh, you'll do pretty much anything to take that opportunity and run with it. From Living Etc magazine, this is Home Truths, a show about the fascinating stories behind some of the most iconic pieces, movements and moments of modern design, revealed by the designers themselves. I'm Pip McCormack, and on the show today, how designer Sebastian Cox took his bucolic childhood tramping around the woods and turned it into a hugely respected design company, employing 15 people and working with some of the biggest brands in the business. If you're anything like me, you've had more time and more opportunities to appreciate nature recently. Instead of rushing around between work and home, I've been lucky enough to incorporate daily walks to the park into my routine, watching as the trees began to bud, as blossom took over, and then green leaves took their place. This simple joy is nothing new for Sebastian Cox, however. His childhood on a farm left him with a profound appreciation for, and understanding of, the natural world. Much of this understanding comes from his incredible ability to be interested in something, research it, and then doggedly pursue it so that it becomes a real thing. Many of his collections, all of which use coppice wood and its byproducts, come from his desire to be in touch with the rhythms of nature, to unearth and follow the principles man used for centuries before industrialization, and from his internally inquisitive mind. Listening to him talk about sustainability, about picking up the scent of something interesting and running with it, and about why we shouldn't have to wait until the future for it to be better, is a fascinating reminder of how design not only looks nice, but at its best, it can help make the world a better place too. Before this interview, Seb gave me five milestones that he feels were key moments in his career, and in explaining the stories behind them, he's gonna tell us how he got to where he is today, starting right back in his family home. I kind of grew up with this absolutely amazing rural upbringing, uh, exposed to uh, not only the natural world, but kind of an appreciation of the traditional ways of living with it. <clears throat> but being a teenager, I sort of it was there, but I didn't really acknowledge or take much interest in it. Although apparently as a child, I, I really did. And then I think when I sort of hit my 20s and I went away to study I wanted to study woodworking, so actually working with the material. And that was the point where it kind of all came flooding back. You know, my early childhood, sort of memories of, of playing in woodlands and actually that connection between the material that I was beginning to work and the actual living organisms that give you that material. It just sort of like dropped into place in this very um, short period of time for me. And I, and I sort of really began to connect quite deeply with trying to broaden my understanding of a material I was working with. And that resulted in your first collection, Products of Silver Culture, in 2010. Um, it, I believe it was sort of two chairs, a lamp and a hat stand made from coppice hazel. Um, and you were fresh from your MA at, from university at the time. Can mm. you tell a little bit about how that came together, the collection? 
Yeah, so, I mean, actually, funnily enough, I, I kind of ended up launching the collection during my MA, and I had to delay the uh, handing in of my dissertation because the sort of commercial side, well, I basically became <laughs> in business. Um, but the whole collection kind of came about um, because, well, when I was studying as an undergraduate student, I started to get very interested in the idea of using British wood. I remember driving past uh, acres of woodland in, in Lincolnshire. I was studying at Lincoln Uni. And arriving at the timber yard, which sold mostly, uh, if not only, I can't really remember, imported wood. And I remember thinking, why can't I have some of the local stuff? Why is there no choice with that? Um, and then I wanted to kind of take that idea into an MA. And with an MA, you kind of have to find a problem to sort of deeply solve. And um, I discovered, uh, oh, I remembered from my childhood learning about coppicing. And I remember uh, when I was about 12 or 13, we had charcoal burners in our in our wood and they cut the wood. And I remember the sort of the way that I had, you know, kind of effectively left the wood with no trees. But then I remember the life afterwards. And I sort of had this realisation or through research, I learned that coppicing was something which wasn't practised much anymore. And where were the charcoal burners and that sort of thing? And then I sort of realized the potential of design to procure materials in the design of the object. And I just kind of thought, well, actually, maybe that's the brief that I've been looking for for my MA is to find a contemporary use for coppiced wood and actually make the products as much about the story of where they've come from as, you know, the importance of them being either beautiful or or useful. And what exactly is coppiced wood? So coppicing is a, an, an ancient method of woodland management uh, in which you cut trees at ground level. Effectively, it's really hard pruning. And um, that gives you a very fast growing, self-replenishing material. Coppicing is a method of woodland management which has existed for thousands of years, simply because if you said to me, Pip, I want uh, a basic tool handle, uh, I wouldn't, you know, today in modern terms, the way that that process would work is that you'd fell a very large tree using uh, mechanical power. You'd then uh, use a lot of energy to cut it up uh, and dry it. And uh, then you'd eventually machine your tool handle. Whereas a thousand years ago, when we only had axes, um, the easiest way to obtain that tool handle was to fell a small tree. So we became really adept at selecting trees at their point of growth um for the different functional requirements that we required from that wood we didn't just make everything from big trees and so it sort of created this culture of understanding that you grow trees for the ultimate material that you need and you need a breadth of sizes and dimensions so we started to cut trees on sort of short uh sort of 12 year cycles uh or or shorter seven years sometimes um depending on what we needed to use it for and which to me just kind of says that there's a much deeper understanding of or a deeper connection between materials and how they're created and the ultimate product that you end up using with them. And this whole thing comes together in this extremely beautiful um, relationship, not only between the maker and the materials, but also between the materials and the habitat that they create. Because when you coppice a woodland, you are inadvertently, originally inadvertently, mimicking the behaviour of giant herbivores. Um, So actually you know trees coppice really well because they have adapted and evolved to being pushed over by really really big browsers and grazers so for example the woolly mammoth which lived on this island for uh, thousands of years before its extinction 
push trees over to eat the leaves. And that, you know, a lot of herbivores relied on tree fodder rather than grass. And what that meant is that the trees evolved to basically adapt to exploit the light that was created by the pushed over trees. So there's this kind of incredible series of things which are ecological, social, um, and they all come from history and they're all absolutely amazing and they all offer fascinating solutions to a lot of today's problems. So as a student in 2010, how did you go about creating a collection? Because that to me seems like just such a difficult thing to do. And, you know, you're just a student. So how did you get this into production? How did you manufacture it? And were you self-coppicing? Yes. So, uh, yeah, I mean, actually, I've got to say, um, because I have focused on the material and the kind of story that goes with that, my career as a designer has actually been relatively, I've found it quite easy to design. Um, At the time, um, all I really wanted to do was take cues from contemporary design and uh, keep the form as simple as possible and just let the material do the talking, which is kind of why you have the hat stand is basically just a stem of hazel with these steam bent hooks um, it, it sort of as an intervention over that sort of very rustic form. Um, so actually the design part was really easy because you can agonize over finding new ways to create the look of something. But actually when you have a completely new material or a very old material uh, that you're reintroducing in the contemporary sphere, it's actually very easy to design. So you know, as a, as a graduate, I, was, I created a collection which did get a lot of attention in the design press because it did look new. But I wasn't, I don't ever consider myself a sort of revolutionary designer. Um, I, I, I just think that I'm just doing what the material wants to be done. And then um, in terms of the coppicing, yes, I was self-producing and self-coppicing. So I, although uh, my family have a wood in Kent, a very small wood, only five acres, I wanted the whole project to be backed by the idea that anybody could have done it. So it's not about having access or ownership of land. Um, So I wanted to use public wood, basically. So I approached the Forestry Commission um, and asked them if they had any hazel. And uh, they just felled um, a two-mile stretch down various forestry tracks where they were thinning at the edges of them. So there was a, a, a mountain of hazel that was just being cut and left in the woodland to rot, effectively. And uh, so there was this enormous uh, availability of the material that I needed. And I just went with my car and, uh, and, and, and gleaned, you know, the straight stuff. Um, and that kind of, to me, was even more exciting because it showed the, the potential of the scalability of the ideas that I was uh, proposing. And then I produced them myself in the workshop at uni. And I like when I first sold the first order of 24 to a shop in Paris, I actually had to kind of bribe the technician um at uni uh with beer at lunchtime to let me kind of actually produce that first collection because you know there were restrictions on what you can do commercially in a university workshop but I didn't have a workshop so I kind of had to beg steal and borrow um to get through that first little bit and um then went on to buy my machines and set my own workshop up to produce them myself but I mean making 24 pieces as a student in a sort of illegally borrowed studio (laughs) is so implausible and, and difficult I mean how did you how did you do that yeah, well, I think, you know, anyone who starts a business has to duck and weave a little bit. Um, and um, I was pretty determined. I've always been pretty, I've got a lot of energy and I've been pretty determined to prove that I'm right. Uh, <laughs> so I guess I, uh, I, um, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I was what, I was 23, 24. I think anyone's got a lot of energy then and you, you do pretty much anything. If someone gives you an opportunity, i.e. someone says, I want to buy the things that you're designing, 
uh, you'll do pretty much anything to get them made and take that opportunity and run with it. So um, I did ask for the extension on my on my MA, which I mentioned, and um, and the university said that that was one of the best excuses they'd ever had for an extension on an MA. <laughs> so uh, so they granted that, and um, and I took the time to to get things up and running, and actually it just contributed to my MA grade because I could prove that my ideas were commercially viable. I, I wonder how. Um, the press got hold of it. You mentioned there was quite a bit of design buzz around you, and I and I in researching this podcast, I found lots of reviews of of your first collection. And I just think how many hundreds of graduates show their work each year. And yours seemed to kind of come to the fore. And and I was thinking back to that time and what I was writing about in in 2010. And you know, aesthetic and design was changing. You know, we had people like Tom Ratfield bending wood in interesting ways. Companies like Benchmark and Urkel have been around for a while, but you know, was suddenly, it felt very much in vogue, you know, this sort of slightly post-recession simplification of the aesthetic. I wonder mm. if you sort of felt part of a, a wood movement at that time and perhaps that was part of the appeal to the press as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I went into it completely unaware of the context, I suppose. I mean, I, I knew the environmental context of, you know, the way that consuming things was damaging the planet. Um, and I also knew that I couldn't find much rusticity in contemporary design, much sort of like, you know, acknowledgement uh, and, and, and even tolerance of, of natural textures. And a lot of the furniture that I would see if I went down to sort of go and have a look around, you know, some of the shops in London was, was veneered and it was, there was a lot of homogenization. So I guess I was being a bit rebellious in putting bark in the furniture and I guess that's what attracted some of the press attention. I mean, I showed at New Designers and then consecutively at uh, what was then Tent London. Um, and um, and I suppose I just stood out uh, by having a bit of bark on show. <laughs> I think that's all it was, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It was. I, I suppose it was set against a, a context of, um, you know, pre-recession. Everything was a bit slick, wasn't it? And... Um, and uh, and also, I think maybe there was something around the kind of, you know, the the shift in the last kind of 15 years that we've had towards a completely digital existence or almost completely digital existence. And I think that that's when a lot of themes around kind of biophilic design and, and a lot of the things that have come out in the last 10 years have tied in with what I was doing accidentally because people are craving nature, nature deficit disorder is a thing which people feel and experience and I think maybe people see in my work something which can perhaps offer a a small domestic um, cure to that. Because I know that you get such a great joy as well of uh, you know from taking walks in the woods you know that sort of feeds your soul as well is this Mm. a happy byproduct of your work do you think or is this did you already know this when you were sort of going into this? Um well, I don't, I don't think I, I think I've always known that I was kind of a nature lover. I mean, my mum's always said, you know, you, from, from, you know, you've always been an earth baby. Um, but I didn't really, I don't think anyone appreciated, I suppose, in 2010, how sort of formally and scientifically we understand the benefits of being in nature. You know, I remember there was a, you know, there's that sort of quite old study in Japan about forest bathing and the idea that that reduces recovery time and things like that. But actually that it's something that we need is something that I think is quite a recent understanding. So I don't think I embarked on this knowing that it would, you know, it would make other people feel good and it would be good for me and my career. But certainly I sort of always known that I needed a connection to 
woodland and, and nature. And I think my choice to move to London, perhaps the thing that kept me sane through that was my connection to my work. I don't know. It's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm sure that there is something inherent in working with wood that keeps you with your feet on the ground, keeps you quite grounded. So in 2014, you started a partnership, an enduring partnership with the kitchen brand Devol. Um, first of all, before we start talking about that, I just want to know what Sebastian Cox, the business, looked like at this time. You, you'd moved to London by this point, I take it. Yes. Yes. So I moved to London just after the Olympics when all the prices had calmed down again. And uh, yeah, so the business in terms of shape uh, had a few people in the workshop. I, I took my first member of staff on, George, uh, in 2012, and then Joe subsequently in 2013. Um, by 2014, um, I'd done my first collaboration with Benchmark, which was my first sort of formal collaboration where I designed the chestnut and ash pieces with them. And um, that was a brilliant learning curve and it was great to work with them. Um, and um, I was sort of trying to really reinforce the message around British woodland as much as possible. And I was learning that actually speaking to the suppliers, timber yards is actually a really good thing to do. So I would regularly chat with them. And I remember in a call with um, our timber yards uh, called Tyler Hardwoods, um, we were talking and uh, I sort of said, what can't you shift? What are you struggling to sell? And they said, beach, English beach is really, really, uh, really, really difficult to shift. Nobody wants it. And um, I thought, gosh, that's a fun starting point for a collaboration. And um, the Vol, funnily enough, got in touch at around that time. And that was the sort of beginnings of our, our working relationship. I thought, well, what better way to use a lot of wood than in a kitchen? And the kitchens, I mean, are beautiful and, and it's, you know, form the basis of a partnership that continues. I wonder um, how you feel that sort of collaboration affected your business or, or what, what boost it gave you? I mean, it elevated our name. It kind of, it was a, it was a sort of a mutual um, kind of, I suppose, a, a mutual benefit in terms of profile. Because I think uh, I had a lot of press in, um, you know, kind of, I suppose, publications like Dezine and things like that, you know, and they had a lot of publication in, in um, sort of more interiors targeted magazines. And I think that there was, for us, it was really good in the sense that it exposed us to these sort of domestic audiences. And for them, it was good in that it, um, you know, began to give them credibility in terms of, you know, sustainability and uh, a sort of an appreciation of natural materials, which, of course, was stuff that they were already doing. But, um, you know, it sort of, I suppose, was ver verification of that by the collaboration uh, that, that we undertook. So it was so much fun. I mean, I went up there with um, a big bundle of coppice wood and some basic woodworking tools. And we did actually start with that. Um, we sort of really went back to sort of basics in terms of exploring the things that I'd been looking at in my career, but also in terms of their capabilities of their production. Um, and uh, yeah, it was over the period of a few months, we sort of started to play around with ideas and, and uh, it was always very, very collaborative with the workshop. And it was just great. I mean, I look back on that sort of period very, very fondly and we still, um, we still play around with ideas and actually we're having conversations about additional pieces at the moment. So it goes on today. And I think, I think it's, you know, it, for us as a business as well, it's important because, 
you know, I mean, one thing that these days is is hard to come by is is um, is royalty sales. You know, it's actually quite hard to you know the 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 age of the sort of the, the pure industrial designer is is kind of coming to an end, and so to have a kind of diverse ability within our business, which is that we can sort of self-produce and do bespoke work, but also that we can design for industry um, is really, really important. And, um, and you know, the, the, the way that Devol can reach many, many more customers with our ideas and, um, and also sell a lot of British wood is a very powerful thing. And I think that, um, you know, the idea that you can be a small player, but then you can collaborate and achieve scale is, um, is very exciting. And it's really important for us to have that in our portfolio. Did working to scale or did the experience generally, did you run into any limitations that you weren't expecting um, that I guess when you're working for yourself, you have a bit more freedom of expression perhaps? Um, I think that the only limitations that I sort of really learnt in that project were basically the kind of limitations around the functional use of a kitchen. Um, and, and of course, the Vol have, you know, pretty unrivaled expertise in that. I mean, you know, I've got to admit that I went into designing a kitchen having never commissioned or owned one. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I was 28 or something like that. I don't know, you know, I was, I was a renter living in London. So um, in that sense, there was a big learning curve for me in terms of how you functionally use a kitchen. And of course, you know, I, I, it simply wouldn't have been the product that it is without their um, guidance on that and their years and years of experience. So um, that was a big learning curve. But I think that was part of the fun of the collaboration was that perhaps I was there to kind of uh, pull them in a new direction in terms of texture and materials. Um, and they were there to very much kind of turn that into a commercial um, product that people would actually want to have in their homes. I think if I had just designed and produced a kitchen out of my own workshop, it would have been very much guesswork in terms of how people were going to use it. I just want to interrupt this conversation to tell you a little bit about what's happening during London Design Festival at Heels. With an exhibition called Art in Lockdown, Heels will be celebrating the creativity that can be born out of diversity and the artists and designers who've used the time during lockdown to create fresh and innovative work. Heels will be showcasing the work across its website, heels.com, as an online gallery, much of which will be available to buy. It's a timely reminder that design continues even in the toughest of circumstances and well worth a look when it's live next month. And thanks very much for supporting this podcast, Heels design that lasts a lifetime and then in 2017 you started working with mycelium for the most kind of beautifully odd range if you don't mind me saying yeah um you know it you know, <clears throat> working with working with mushroom fungus is not the route that many designers go down and i sort of wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how that came about yes um the work with mycelium has been uh you know a, a, such an interesting journey um and it all started as most of the things that I do start in the woods, actually. <laughs> well, going back to my MA, uh, one of the things that happened during my MA was that I was very interested as a potential use for all of this waste coppiced wood or waste as it was to the Forestry Commission. I thought about how we could maybe chip it up and turn it into some sort of uh, sheet material. And um, one of the issues that I have generally with sheet materials is that they are only as structurally strong as the glue that binds them. Um, and I really dislike MDF for that reason. And actually, sometimes the glue that binds them is really, really toxic and unpleasant, as in the case of much MDF. And uh, so I started playing around with pressing hazel and all that sort of stuff. And um, my tutor at the time said, Seb, come on, this is an MA, not an MSC. Go stop boiling wood and go make some furniture, which I 
went and did. And I left the idea to sort of brew for a few more years. And then one day I was in the wood in probably 2015, 2016, can't quite remember, uh, coppicing, and two pieces of hazel were fused together. So two pieces of hazel that had been growing vertically had stuck themselves together, and I was kind of fascinated by this. Simultaneously, on that Friday, I think it was, I went to a Friday late at the V&A, and uh, it was all about, it was called Growing the Future or something like that, and it was all about um, biofacture as a subject, and I saw, um, you know, lamps grown from xylenum, which was a, um, a, a, a cellulose byproduct of basically kombucha tea. Um, I saw cheese grown from human sweat. It was just, it was a bizarre kind of challenging, fascinating uh, exhibition, which opened my eyes to the idea that we can grow material culture um and not just kind of produce it from you know refined materials and i left and i said to brogan oh god this is amazing I, you know this is this is i feel like i've seen the future we, you know we need to we need to get involved in this what can we do and then that kind of dawned on me that actually the mycelium uh that i you know the the, the, the fusion that i found in the wood was potentially a part of that so i got in touch with the british mycological society and sent them a picture of the of the sort of fusing sort of black sludge in my woodland and uh they said yes this is almost certainly a, a mycelium of some sort we'll put you in touch with our design outreach worker who i think was you know probably sat behind the desk waiting for the phone to ring <laughs> to be honest <laughs> <laughs> um and that was uh, Ninella ivanova who's my collaborator on the whole project and uh, we met and had a had a nice dinner um and uh and the whole idea sort of sparked from there really we thought that what we would do is we'd look at the waste from our woodland and we would try and bind it together with uh fungal uh mycelium and um she had a lot of expertise in this because she was doing a phd at kingston in design research and um you know immediately um we started to get results in terms of being able to bond the wood together and at the same time, you know, there were a lot, you know, there's a lot of other companies starting to do this um, because the equipment that you need is, is quite low tech. So there was a company in the US called Ecovative who were starting to do it as well. Um, uh, so we don't claim to have invented this, but certainly we saw our part in the conversation as being um, maybe the people who could begin to domesticate it. We wanted to create sort of homeware. We wanted to create household objects. And kind of the idea was that we would bring the future forward because everyone was talking about it as being a material of the future. And so we thought, well, why don't we make it about now? We have kind of, uh, you know, credibility and prestige as being people who design domestic objects. Why not sort of combine the world's most unfamiliar material, as it was then, with the world's most f familiar and warm material, which is wood? So that was what we saw our role as and the collection sort of came from there. I mean, the collection is incredible to look at. The lampshades are, you know, these kind of irregular but wonderful pieces. I, I, I sort of feel, and I hope you don't mind me saying, that it was fascinating as it is, it was probably never going to have more than a limited commercial appeal. Um, <laughs> I wonder how, as a you know, relatively small business, you can kind of justify doing projects like this that probably aren't going to be huge sellers but are just, you know, immensely fascinating to yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think we were trying to challenge more than create something which was an easy sell, of course. Um, well, I think, 
uh, small businesses um I, I th- one of the things that i think generally comes with small businesses is, is that they are generally quite resourceful um and when you are a sort of a collection of people who are driven by enthusiasm um and and a kind of an appetite for you know doing good which is what most of the people in my business um are like um you do find the time for these things and um I, I I I don't think I think Ninella was very generous with her time, um, you know, uh, and would make time to come to the workshops in the evenings. But mostly we work on it after kind of after shop hours, so to speak. Um, but you just do these things when you are driven by, you know, a passion for for, uh, you know, doing interesting things and and potentially, you know, being part of a big conversation about how we make a difference in our world. And so what was happening in the business at the time to kind of keep it ticking over while you were, you know, pursuing this, this sort of passion project? Um, well, I mean, we got fairly well established as a, as a business designing and making bespoke furniture um, from British Wood. So um, that was ticking along really nicely. And I think at this time I had sort of maybe six people in the workshop producing the work. Um, obviously, Brogan uh, at this point had joined the company um and um so Brogan was very much sort of directing the business um uh and i you know i i think um it was supported by the kind of you know the the general uh business that we built in terms of you know the sort of making furniture that has always been the kind of backbone of what we do which has enabled us to take on these kind of experimental projects and i think that's one of the things that has been successful about our business is that there is this really great balance between commerce and then pushing ideas which both support each other and i wonder about your next collaboration then in 2018 you partnered with a very big brand burberry um Mm. for a range of screens and what's so fascinating to me about that is that you have based your whole career on sustainability and um you know using uh, materials sustainably and pushing that envelope and the fashion industry generally you know much as many brands try is not an industry that's known for, for that so i wonder how that partnership even began as a kind of a talking point yeah i mean i think it's a fair point i think um i, I think any business that kind of expresses uh, a an interest in um, doing good effectively either by you know commissioning works that change the feel of their stores or you know employing consultants who can improve things I think that uh, you know if the will is there then I think that should be definitely um, recognized and uh, you know obviously Burberry are you know they've got a long history um, fashion hasn't always been kind of you know fast and exploitative um, they've been going since I think 1856 or something like that. They're a kind of a British institution, and um, you know they, they uh, under Christopher Bailey there was this real interest in exploring heritage, tradition, craft, and uh, and and Britishness. And I and I just kind of thought, well, that actually that's that feels like a really right collaboration. They're heading in a direction um, which really aligns with what we're doing. And they are, they, you know, they're being really respectful of what we do. It wasn't like a, um, here's a purchase order, you got six weeks, uh, you know, and uh, we'll sue you if you don't deliver on time. It wasn't like that at all. It was absolutely collaborative, interested. Um, they were very sensitive. 
um, they came down. We were working with quite directly with their director of architecture. So we were working with people who are at a very senior level. So they treated us with an enormous degree of respect um, and interest in what we were doing and really made us feel like we were adding value to, to, to what they were trying to achieve. And so it really felt like everything aligned. And, um, and I think that, um, you know, that there's a lot to be said for larger organisations uh, sort of, um, you know, work, collaborating with and working with small studios um, because it can offer opportunities for those small studios to really, really grow and to learn and to sort of share that kind of, um, that sort of progressive British creative industry that we have and then in 2020 you launched your manifesto modern life from wilder land um, about making land less intensive and more productive um can you tell us a little bit about how you came to wanting to create this beautiful book essentially <laughs> yeah um well it's a funny one because I don't really think I'd ever have imagined that we'd end up writing whatever it is 15,000 words on the subject um, I think it was probably a blog post uh, to, start, <laughs> to start with. It started because uh, Brogan and I were, um, well, before we had a baby, we used to do things like go out for brunch and it was jolly nice. And um, and uh, we we would discuss at length kind of, you know, what, what we thought about, you know, the state of the world. And um, I was very distressed at the time that um, we had some really significant issues in terms of climate change and particularly biodiversity loss. I think the um, State of Nature report had just come out and uh, was, was, uh, was really reading some devastating news for British wildlife. And, um, but everyone was talking about plastic. Um, and I just kind of thought, wow, it's really interesting that people have been captured by this story, um, uh, but not uh, the other stories, which are potentially bigger. Um, so I kind of wanted to sort of reframe how we looked at sustainability and really define the important parts of sustainability to us as a brand. So we, we, we talked about, you know, we, we sort of laid out on paper that um, for us, our priorities are tackling, uh, you know, carbon emissions, biodiversity loss. And the third part is wasteful material culture. And so um, part of that was it very quickly led to how we use our land, because, you know, when you look at how you resolve issues in terms of you know biodiversity um what you do is you just say well actually rewilding has proven that all you need to do with to solve the biodiversity crisis is just rewild our land and if we just took britain and completely rewilded it then we'd have no biodiversity crisis here but of course we need that land for other services like perhaps um low energy economies like perhaps um, solar farms or, or energy crops and you don't get much biodiversity in an energy crop um, we also need to feed ourselves and we also need materials for making things like furniture. So how do we balance all of that lot um, and make a credible argument and a credible case, particularly on the background and context of the sort of vegan movement, which was happening, well, is, is happening now, but really had, I felt, really begun um, uh, uh, sort of earlier last year um, in terms of sort of widespread popular conversation. And how do we sort of um, debunk some of the myths around that and um, and, and clarify um, the good and the bad. Um, and then it ended up becoming this massively ambitious document which explored how we can tackle climate change, reach a, reach a net zero economy, um, restore our depleted wildlife um, and, and onshore our <laughs> industries and food 
um uh yeah all, all within all within a few decades so um yeah it was pretty ambitious it's all based on kind of secondary research by looking at pre-existing models and pre- previous research um and just sort of pulled together maybe our view of how we would go about doing that if we were if we were in charge i mean i'm not a trained writer so i'm sure you can imagine that there, there were a lot of drafts um so there's there's many many more words than the fifteen thousand that ended up there that did get written. So it did take about probably three or four months, um, and I think um, towards the end of it, I was quite keen to get it done. Um, but yeah, no, it was. I really enjoyed it actually because I think I uh, before writing it, I had I, I was very um, uh, I was very sort of animated and 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 uh, I really wanted to put the points across, and I would get very frustrated with people. Uh, posting incorrect things or the things that maybe were unfounded on on Facebook or Instagram. And so I'd always end up saying, well, no, there's this and this, you know, I'd always end up in arguments with people. So actually getting it out there was also getting something off my chest, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, as with all things, I just kind of threw my full energy behind it to get it done. And um, and uh, and now people keep asking what's next for it. We Brogan and I were discussing this actually because it is a question that we've been asked, which we sort of didn't really, <laughs> didn't really expect. And the answer is uh, that we're actually going to start compiling a list um, each year um, or maybe twice a year of um, suppliers because we've been approached a lot by people saying, you know, we've read your manifesto. We absolutely love the ideas in it. We're doing X, Y and Z. And here's how it's done benefit and here's how it's done done good. Um, and uh, of course, we've built a platform where, you know, I've, I've been astonished by how many people have buy it. My phone kind of pings with, with the order of, you know, whatever, £7.50, including delivery several times a day um so we've kind of got a massive list of people who have bought it and i think that we could begin to publish a list of kind of you know things that fit the manifesto um which is so exciting you know the idea that um we sort of you know put this idea floated this idea out there and people have come back and said oh we're already doing that please you know please tell people about our you know our leather or or our you know peas that are grown in this particular way or whatever um so yeah, I think I think a list that uh, sort of a resource a directory that people can go to um, to actually buy into the thing and and uh, oh god, start to make it happen. Wouldn't that be amazing? Be amazing. You strike me as somebody whose interest gets piqued quite often by fascinating things and projects and curious little asides that you come across probably all the time in your walks of life. Because because you're such a curious person, I, I know you sort of follow your nose into these topics. I wonder. First of all, where your interests are taking you at the moment. And second of all, how you prioritise all these things that you are spinning around your mind. Mm, yes, prioritising is the difficult part. I've, I have a very active mind and actually picking one to sort of, uh, you know, explore further is, is the big one. I mean, at the moment for me, um, my, my significant area of interest is uh, what we're learning about rewilding. So what we're learning about how letting... Uh, the natural world do its own thing uh, you know how that basically just letting go is what nature wants us to do and um, kind of see I mean that was one of the core themes of the manifesto was wherever possible we we need to let go of land Um, and just seeing the examples that are coming out now um, and the science as it's beginning to understand sort of the ecology of landscapes um, for example, the the uh, ble- the Wilder Bleen project in Kent, which is um, where they're reintroducing the first bison for thousands of years, um, 
you know, seeing Kent Wildlife Trust take some European bison and bring them over here to see, and then put them in some Kentish woodland just to see what happens is just, to me, so phenomenally exciting because people are starting to really push it in terms of reintroducing species that were here and, and, and really, really let go, not just create nature reserves and sort of leave bits of land, but actually to intervene in those landscapes and, and actually try to, you know, reimpose herbivores and all these kinds of things and, and see what happens is just so phenomenally exciting. I'm, I'm actually sometimes unable to concentrate on designing furniture because I'm so kind of interested in ecology. And we've just bought a house. And so I think I will be thinking a lot about designing my own furniture and, um, and uh, you know, how, how we can make that a space that we, we really want to live in as well. So, Seb, I wonder if you have ever had a master plan for your business or your career and if so how close you are to it right now um well I never really had a plan I suppose I wanted to I I think I wanted to have a business which sustained my you know make a living not a killing was what I sort of always thought uh you know I I always thought it's quite sort of an honorable way to live your life making furniture for people and I think secretly in the back of my mind I think from a student age I'd kind of um, I saw Gareth Neal's work get acquired by the V&A and I thought, yeah, that would be a, that would be a sort of a life's achievement. If, if the V&A ever acquired my work, um, I'd retire very happy. And uh, that hasn't happened yet. So I'm still sort of secretly perhaps on the quest for that. Um, uh, I need to make some work that's worthy. Uh, but um yeah, I, I, there's no real masters. I mean, it, latterly, we've been a bit more strategic and sort of thought more about how we're going to sort of plan out the next five years, the next 10 years. But previously, um, I'm not strategic like that. I'm very impulsive and, and instinctive. Brogan is much more strategic. Um, so uh, up to sort of three or four years ago, it was very much like, you know, oh, this is interesting. Let's throw everything we have at that and see what happens and um, but now we are a bit more kind of a bit more rounded in our in our plan because it's actually a much better way to to really progress and and um, the plan over the next few years is to kind of continue to build what we've been doing but then to equally move into other fields and I think that's one of the things which I've really enjoyed about the last couple of years is that we have been we have felt unrestrained by wood you know wood is obviously our core material primary material but um we have started to work with other materials like like mycelium like clay and indeed started to host supper clubs so we're sort of expressing not only um how you can live around objects but also around food which ties into the manifesto um we will eventually do um apparel um you know it will be a very broad kind of uh how to exist with nature um company over the next sort of 10 years i think um spanning you know everything from lifestyle to food furniture and and everything in between fantastic well listen we're going to move into the last section of the podcast now the home truths section which is a quick fire round oh gosh you're gonna be fine you'll be fine so seb what was the last piece of homeware that you bought the last piece of homeware that I bought were uh, some mugs by um, um, uh, 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 Jake and Tiller Waters, uh, who are potters in Wales. I think it's Jake. Gosh, I can't remember the first name. Um, because I chipped one of our existing collection. And do you have a favourite wood to work with? Um, that's like asking someone to choose their favourite child. Uh, I'm going to say hazel because it was my first sort of, it was my career defining wood, uh, coppiced hazel. 
And do you have a favourite wood to take a walk in? Um, my favourite wood to take a walk in is actually our wood in Kent, not because it's particularly spectacular, but because my greatest joy comes from uh, kind of observing the change and it's the wood that I know the best. So it doesn't matter how spectacular your local wood is. If you observe it in detail um, and see the change that happens in that wood, that, that is, um, I think, much more rewarding than any kind of panoramic landscape. What are you reading at the moment? Um, I am reading at the moment. Uh, God, I've got a couple of books on the, on the go. Um, there's a book. Oh, I can't even remember the title of it. But, um, a book about how to read the landscape. I think it might be called How to Read the Landscape. And it's, um, it's about how to sort of predict when rain's coming because uh, the clouds are a particular colour. It explains about the science of rainbows, um, different soil types. Basically, um, I'm sort of secretly hoping that at some point after reading that book, I'll get lost in the British landscape and, and have to find my way to a pub or something like that um, and be able to use all of those skills. Um, do you watch much TV? I don't really have time for much TV, but I do watch a bit. Generally, don't really steer away from the BBC very often. Fair enough. What's the best thing about working with your wife? Uh, the best thing about working with my wife is um, actually kind of experiencing creative and sort of uh, strategic fulfillment together um you know when things go badly well then generally you know we have to sort of pull together and try not to argue um uh, but when things go well it is the biggest buzz um because you're building it together and that is phenomenally exciting do things go badly very often because i have this wonderful uh, vision of you guys in the workshop just pottering around happily humming and drinking tea whilst planing some wood is that not what happened no uh things go wrong all the time things go wrong all the time i think every business experiences this so uh this morning i've arrived at the workshop and uh, the plane is broken there's an electrical fault with one of the motors um yesterday unfortunately a piece got scratched in transit because we don't own a van because we don't have an outdoor space and uh, we're struggling to get rid of our waste wood at the minute because um, nobody wants firewood in the summer. So those are kind of like three things which, all right, they're not massive problems, but they are kind of logistical difficulties which always need solving. So there are always little things that kind of go wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, and let, let alone when you're running a, a team of 15, anyone who runs, you know, a, a company with that many people or even, a, you know, a, a, that many people within a larger organisation, you, you know, it's like having an extended family. You've always got people experiencing different difficult personal problems and all those kinds of things. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's not like uh, one of the things I always think is that when things do go wrong in the workshop, you know, we're not brain surgeons. We're not working for NASA. We're just making furniture. So really, um, we don't have that much to complain about. But there are always challenges. And lastly, where can people engage with your work? So uh, I, I would say the main ways that people can engage with our work at the moment because of COVID would be our website and our Instagram uh, uh, profile. Um, our website uh, is everything from like a resource uh, resource area through to a shop. Uh, and our Instagram has all sorts of information about kind of um, the natural world, particularly wildflowers at the moment, because I'm really interested in that. Um, but in non-COVID times, um, people can engage with what we do through uh, our workshop. I mean, we have a workshop in London and I choose to keep the workshop there for the reasons that basically it's really great for people to come and see and connect with the things that we make. Um, you know, we have a team of absolutely lovely uh, people here uh, I'm really proud of them all I kind of want people to come down to the workshop and see the space that we're in um, uh, and uh, and see the pieces that they're commissioning being made it's really important to me 
and um, it's an absolutely essential part of what we do. Um, it's a shame, Pip, that we're you know that you weren't able to come today because of COVID. It's it's just the way that it works uh, at the moment. But we want to get back to um, you know a sort of a, 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 a people coming by invitation down to see us as as much as possible. Well, listen, Seb, thank you so much for your time. It was fascinating as always to hear you talk. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Pip. Lovely to speak to you. Bye. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Home Truths. In the meantime, don't forget to buy the latest issue of Living Etc. in the stores now and to follow us on Instagram on at Living Etc. UK and me on at Pip McCormack. See you next time. This episode of Home Truths was sponsored by Heels, design that lasts a lifetime.